Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Recent advances in computing, combined with rapid progress in artificial intelligence, have rekindled an old debate about the feasibility of top-down economic planning. While 20th century experiments in socialism ultimately failed, some techno-socialists have argued a new set of tools could help planners outperform markets. But today's guest argues no amount of computing power or sophisticated algorithms can overcome the fundamental flaws of socialist planning. Pete Betke joins this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, to discuss. Pete is a professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University and director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. Last year, he and Rosalino Candela authored the paper on the feasibility of techno-socialism. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jim. The paper that you co-wrote on the feasibility of techno-socialism is an interesting paper of sort of economic philosophy, uh, economic history as well. But I think it gained a lot more relevance in November of last year with the introduction of chat GPT. And I wonder if you could just take a, a minute to and explain a little bit the history of techno-socialism. So I think one of the key things to always keep in mind is that socialism in its scientific form from Marx forward promised that they would rationalize production as opposed to the anarchy of production under the market. And so they were going to use modern technologies all through the different times to be able to rationalize production. So the first one was simply you know, the development of advanced bookkeeping and management techniques, like, for example, Taylorism and the idea that you're going to have scientific management to be able to rationalize the economy. And they would point to things like the experience during wartime economies and how countries during wartime economies could be able to, like, mobilize their resources, use advanced tools of bureaucracy to be able to rationalize production for the goal of, of fighting the war. And then the claim was, can you do that in peacetime, right? And the assumption was, obviously we can, uh, because we did it in wartime and, and they don't really distinguish that. So uh, as, as modern tools of management evolved, there was always an aspiration that those tools could then be used to plan the entire economy as well. So rather than just improve a firm, they could improve an entire economy. So that included, by the way, linear programming, right, at, at different times. And then, you know, uh, other kinds of ideas of operations management research, uh, you know, which was very heavily influenced by this idea that you could rationally plan uh, the outcome. And so then obviously as computer technology improved, that was the great hope of a lot of people as well. Um, and you have, you know, the Soviets developing their ideas of, of linear programming and, and, you know, Kontorovich actually won a Nobel Prize for his idea of doing, you know, these kind of things. But then there also was the dream aspirations, even in Chile, 
right, where they thought they were going to be able to have this computer system that could plan the economy. And then, you know, that's under Allende, and then they never were able to implement it. Um, and so then there was always this dream aspiration. And so the history of, of socialism <clears throat> is a history, a long march actually through various reaching out of aspirations of technology, marrying with the goals of socialism to be able to achieve them. And so this is just the latest ramification of it. This is also in the current context, besides technology, people also think this is the first time anyone ever said democratic socialism, which of course is, is completely wrong too. The Soviets, the term Soviet actually in Russian means what? It actually means worker councils, democratic socialism. I mean, they were going to bring real democratic, you know, uh, 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 planning, real democracy to the idea. So you're going to combine democracy and planning. But it's also the case that if you look at the uh, English socialists in the 1930s, their argument was, we are socialists in our economics because we're liberal Democrats in our politics. And the belief was, is that the Great Depression had revealed that moneyed interests and monopoly power were such that they undermined democratic society. So socialism had to be the way to do it. And so this is why Hayek's criticism becomes all that much more because he really meant it when he said that he dedicated the road to serfdom to socialists of all parties because he was trying to show a tragic outcome that you want these democratic values to be achieved, but socialism is actually going to end up by undermining the democratic values. So it wasn't the case that earlier socialists just sat you know, back and like rub their hands and said, you know, how can I have a totalitarian society? Totalitarianism is the sort of unattended, undesirable outcome of their dream aspiration to have a rationalized democratic society in which the state plays this major role. I wonder if we could just narrow down for a second on the problem that techno-socialism was meant to solve. Uh, I think most people are probably aware that uh, the economy of the United States uh, was better than the economy of the Soviet Union, particularly toward the end. So what was what is what was sort of the failure of central planning sort of specifically that if they only had better, better, more powerful computers, they might be able to solve? Right. So from Adam Smith all the way up to the development of the 20th century of economics, economists had articulated the role of property, prices, and profit and loss accounting in coordinating our economic lives and commercial society. And during this period of time, we of course, you know, witnessed and experienced tremendous economic growth and, and, and progress, you know, just you know, look at the 19th century in England and look at, you know, what happened in economic growth terms and everything like that. And then the United States, um, you know, and, and whatnot. But it was also the case that the criticism of market economies grew up alongside of this, right? So you had the development of a concern with monopoly power. You had development of concern with business cycles and, and whatnot. And so, again, going back to what I was saying before about rationalizing production, the belief was is that you know, the commercial society guided by property rights, prices, and profit and loss, yes, it could mobilize people's, in, you know, incentives, marshal them in a direction that leads to economic growth. But during the whole period of time, it was kind of ragged. 
and it maybe the results weren't evenly distributed. And in fact, it could cause severe, you know, disruptions in society. First of all, you know, as we moved to cities, we were on top of each other. And so there was those kind of externalities that were associated. When we move away from living on the farm to now working in the factories, when there's unemployment, that, you know, is, is, is devastating to the population. And so there was these social issues that needed to be, you know, addressed, you know, recognized, let's say, in the beverage report of the five giants of, you know, uh, you know, uh, poverty, uh, you know, unemployment, disease, uh, you know, ignorance in our schools. And, you know, they all had to be addressed through, through social policies. And so that's what the, the idea of the socialist project was supposed to solve, was by turning the means of, of production over to the state, we could eliminate the monopoly power and we could eliminate the economic disruptions caused by business cycles by rationalizing production. And then we could address these social ills, um, which, you know, people began to believe were a consequence of politics rather than of economic life. Um, you know, an important component of this and this, you know, uh, remember that the puzzle uh, as put by Henry George and other reformers, was we had poverty amidst plenty. So if you consider what it was like in the beginning of the 19th century and how you know people lived miserably uh, and were in extreme poverty, and then by the end of the 19th century, we're starting to see more and more people escape from the Malthusian trap, uh, let alone what we see in the 20th century in terms of that. Um, they believed that we had solved the problem of scarcity. And so now what we needed to do was make sure that our politics was arranged such that the results would be equally distributed and we wouldn't have such massive disruptions. And the Great Depression, of course, you know, led to a, a loss of faith in a whole generation of intellectuals in the West that a market economy could, in fact, uh, be an engine of economic growth in modern times. And instead, we needed to turn away from uh, viewing the state as a referee to the state now as an active player in the economic game. And that's kind of the consequence of the Great Depression. I was wondering if the global financial crisis hasn't played a role in sort of renewed interest in this topic. Well, even though that predates some of these latest AI advances, certainly some people were saying this is a failure of capitalism. It is too chaotic. And uh, if, it ever, if ever possible... It'd be great if we could rationalize uh, this economic system. And then, of course, along comes a, a, what, what seems to be like a pretty a pretty big advance in AI. So, Jim, I think that that uh, is, is very perceptive. It was the global financial crisis combined, I think, with the renewed interest in the observation of great inequality. So the Piketty stuff had a very big impact. Um, and in terms of the just the general zeitgeist of people's mindset. So, you know, for someone like myself who reads a lot, you know, on the history of economic thought, um, right now, by the way, for your listeners, I would highly recommend this. And I think that your listeners would be very excited about this is Jennifer Burns's new biography on Milton Friedman. I think it's going to be a blockbuster. It's, it's amazing. But one of the things that she does in that so well is she captures the world in which Milton Friedman was was basically emerging as an economic pugilist, right? In which he's fighting. And it's like we're reliving the same 
arguments over and over again, because again, Friedman is coming out of the Great Depression. You know, that's when he's being educated in the middle of the Great Depression. The whole New Deal is on the table. The post-war economy is again, you know, can we get planning? It's a men of science. You know, can we do all this stuff? And Friedman lived through all of that. And he's trying to explain the power of the price system and the tyranny of economic control to an audience, which is completely not interested in that message. And so Friedman being able to figure out how to actually pull that off and communicate that is amazing. And the arguments that Friedman and his colleagues, you know, let's take a broad sense of that, um, all came up with in the period between 1950 and 1980, they're all the arguments that are being forgotten today. And it's not just macroeconomics, it's also microeconomics, like antitrust policy, everything like that. So if you read what's in the papers today and in the, in, in, in the general view of things, um, people just believe and lost faith in the market economy to deliver the goods precisely at a time when the market economy had actually delivered, you know, less in 2015 is the first time in human history, less than 10 percent of the world's population was living in extreme poverty. It's like a, an economic miracle that's unbelievable. But and that's due to the age of globalization. But yet it's completely forgotten by, you know, the kind of concern with the global financial crisis then the idea of the inequality issues and the growing inequality, and then combine that with then COVID and the need for the state to be able to handle a giant, you know, significant externality. And, you know, we're all the way back to, you know, the kind of world that Milton Friedman had to fight intellectually. Um, so, you know, again, a lot of the arguments that are going to emerge are going to be reiterating some of the arguments that happened in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, um, you know, but they're now new because there's new technologies and and new responses that have to be made. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's what that's what I wanted to say. So if I if I were a uh, a uh, a techno socialist, I might think that the socialists of the past weren't wrong; they were just a little bit early. If you take Moore's law plus big data. As long as, I, as long as I have enough computing power or compute and enough data, gosh, uh, if Amazon can do it, if Walmart can do it, uh, why the heck can't Washington, D.C. do it? All right. So this is where now it becomes you know, a very interesting conversation about how markets really work. Because one of the fundamental problems is when you frame it in terms of the way that you just did, you're, you're viewing the problem of the economic system as a computational problem. It's just a complex computational problem. What actually what markets are all about is discovery of information that previously doesn't exist. So it's not an algorithm of different exists. So in, in, in social learning literature, they make a distinction between kind learning environments and wicked learning environments. And so in a kind learning environment, the parameters are fixed. Now they could be quite huge. Like think about a game of chess. There's only so many, there's a finite number of moves in a game of chess. Now it could be extremely complicated and complex, but it's finite, okay? It's finite, which means that a computer can churn through all of those moves and just process them quickly. So what happens? A computer, Deep Blue, can beat a grandmaster in, in chess. But when is a robot going to outmaneuver, you know, 
uh, Roger Federer on a tennis court or uh, Ronaldo or Messi on a, on a soccer you know pitch or whatever. And the reason for that is that they get the ball and it comes to them in ways oftentimes that never came to them before. Right. And so all of a sudden that's a that's a wicked learning environment in which the the parameters are not fixed. But what happens is you have to adjust and adapt on the fly to be able to then respond correctly to that, as opposed to the way a game of chess is played. And so the, the it's very, you know, interesting to compare where is it that computers actually are excellent at doing things and where it is that they're clunky and uncoordinated and everything like that. Now, you know, again, going back to your young socialists, they might look at that and say, oh, we just aren't there yet. Because look at what large language models are doing. But how do large language models learn? Large language models learn by humans learning and posting things all over the place. And then the computer does what? It processes all the stuff that's out there and then summarizes it in someone else. So like I just goofed around at in, in May because I had to give a little commencement address. And I said, oh, let me go on this and check and see what a commencement address would be. And basically what it did, it spit out a commencement address in five seconds. That was basically, uh, you know, through a, a, a compilation of like all the famous, you know, commencement addresses. And so it gave me, you know, the basic thing. And of course it was like certainly passable and, and everything like that, but it wasn't like he came, it, the, the computer came up with something I never heard before, right? I never heard before. Now tell me what it's like to actually, you know, invent these. I'm holding up an iPhone, right? When the world is full of, of, of Blackberries and you come along and come up with this, that's something that actually pushes you outside of the limits, right? And 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 you're using different things or come up with like, say, combinatorial thinking that borrows from jazz music and, you know, rap music and some other thing to come up with something that people hadn't even thought about before. And that's kind of what the economy is trying to actually constantly process and do. And it's this wicked learning environment within the commercial society that, requires the tools of property rights to incentivize us, you know, prices to guide us in our decisions, profits to lure us, and losses to discipline us. And without those tools of the commercial society, we are basically without a compass floating around. So then what that means is that these tools of large language learning become precisely that, tools that an individual can use, just like I use on my phone, my fitness app, right? To try to track what I'm doing and, and everything like that. But it's not for the economy as a whole. And I think this is becomes a very important distinction, which is very subtle and very hard for people to you know, understand, which is that a firm like Walmart, which is huge, or Amazon, which is huge, is still nevertheless a firm. It has a single objective function. An economy doesn't have a single objective function. It satisfies the multiplicity of desires and ends that all of us have, all right? And so an economy doesn't have a, uh, I mean, like an economic system, a market system, um, doesn't have a singular overarching end. It has, the whole goal of it is to have a multiplicity of ends which gets satisfied through various different entrepreneurial ventures to you know, meet the consumer demands and whatnot. 
as opposed to the objective function of a firm, and that firm can legitimately claim to have a residual claimant, an individual who is ultimately responsible for the profits or losses of that firm. And so again, go back to the BlackBerry, uh, you know, example. Uh, you know, one month before Apple introduced the iPhone, BlackBerry was the number one phone in the world, right? I mean, no one was challenging the market power of BlackBerry. And then all of a sudden, within a month, boom, like that. That's what capitalism brings. That's what Schumpeter referred to as the creative destruction aspects. And so we rely so much on those creative destruction to actually fuel economic growth and development. And socialism is going to need to have that as well. But where are they going to discover that? It's not going to come from an algorithm. It's going to have to come from human creativity. If you hear about these environmentalist degrowth people who don't really like economic growth, who who uh, kind of want to keep things stable and focus on redistribution, in that kind of scenario, may, maybe the AI planner would work. Um, I'm not going to say that it, it works, but... What it will do is it will actually fit just like under military uh, interventions where there's one goal to be achieved, right? Which is say win the war, that you can mobilize labor by having a draft, right? And, and to, you know, marshal labor to do that. Um, you know, therefore you could say, oh, that works because I now marshaled my troops and I was able to do that. If you didn't think that you needed to grow in order to have the economy continually fight the problems, let's say, of climate change, then trying to stagnate the economy, you know, yeah, this is the way you would achieve it. But the problem with that is that that stagnation doesn't address any of the problems that need to be addressed. The only way that we're ever going to be able to, you know, like defeat the problems that we are confronted with is by advances in technology and new and innovative ways to produce things or to you know distribute things you know in the economy so you know one of the goals of economic life in a commercial society is to produce more with less that very act of producing more with less is actually conservation it's the way in which we actually redirect energy and everything else. Technology is life-saving um, and, and economic processes that allow us to produce more with less. Now, how do you discover the processes of producing more with less? Well, you do that through the profit and loss system and the role of guiding, guiding role of prices and incentivized by the idea of property rights, right? And so when we don't have those kind of functional operations going on, we're kind of, you know, basically just stumbling around blind in the dark. And we can substitute one goal, right, which is we're going to achieve X. But the problem with that is that there's no way that that achieving of that X is going to be able to address the existing problems that we have because we've now reduced the technological discovery aspects of things. And then put it another way, which is actually ironic, which is that if you don't have an incentive for us to be able to come up 
with new and innovative ways to use large language models, why would anyone come up with the large language models? Right? You, they would stagnate. They, they wouldn't. They wouldn't actually, you know, uh, get there. So the reason why people are coming up with them right now is precisely because there's rates of return to be had from that, which is a, a because they have private property rights and they can monetize those, and therefore their creative and cleverness and going at and doing it. But, you know, socialism eliminates by nature that very incentive mechanism that's in operation. Let's think of socialism more like the Chinese version or even those uh, in Western countries who would like to have a, just a lot more intervention. You know, they might want to have more industrial policy or government, you know, picks, win picks winners and losers for subsidies. Don't you think that in those cases, having a very smart AI might allow those kinds of economies, which aren't Soviet-style economies, to to perform better by by creating a a better a better planning tool for either industrial policy planners or the uh, or the engineers in Beijing. Yeah, so I I think that um, so one of the things that I would argue is that even let's say we talk about national conservatives, let's stick to that group for right now. I'll get to China in a second. But, uh, you know, the national conservatives who, you know, think that we've lost our telos, that, the you know, the commercial liberal society has lost our, our telos. We need to have that back. Uh, it, the results have, have, you know, been borne by the, uh, the benefits by the elite and who's been left behind is community and, and, and whatnot. And so then the idea is, OK, so now I'm going to now rearrange the economic system to make sure that, let's say, you know, the Rust Belt of America doesn't get hollowed out and that people still have meanings of their jobs and things like that. So I'm gonna pick winners and losers in this process. Even in that scenario, it's still the case that you wanna produce more with less, right? Because you wanna actually be able to actually satisfy the desires of meeting that goal in the most efficacious way as possible Otherwise, you're going to meet a goal, but not actually have the goal because you'll be mired in poverty and waste. So you're going to still want to achieve the goal of directing resources, let's say, to the Rust Belt as efficaciously as you possibly can, which means that you're going to have to have some kind of mechanism to tell us about how it is that I'm allocating resources because scarcity is not going away. So we're still going to have to wrestle with scarcity and allocate scarce resources among the different competing ends as efficaciously as we possibly can. And that, in its essence, is the problem of economic calculation. How do I move from the economically, let's say, or let's say the technologically feasible to the economically viable, right? This is what's going on. So I have a technologically feasible project but is it economically viable in order for me to do it this way or that way or some other way? How do I discover that? And so if I want to try to make sure that, let's say, the steel industry or, you know, the auto industry stayed, you know, at the frontier of, of economic life in America, I'm going to still want to do that in the most, you know, effective way I can. And I have to discover that because currently I'm not doing that. So under my current system, we're not actually doing that. We're finding out that, let's say, that exporting that industry to some other country is a cheaper way to do it. 
if I'm going to try to do it here, I have to find ways in which I'm actually going to lower the cost and improve the output there. Um, you know, and so that's got to be the focus. So even the, the, the strongest desire, the Owen Cass or whoever, you know, who wants to have this sort of come about, they, they it's a pipe dream for them to think that they, they don't have to meet an economic test, right? That, right? It's just them saying things. Oh, you know, we want to prioritize this. Okay, good. You want to prioritize that. But then what is the most, you know, effective way for you to prioritize that? And, you know, and, and because they have to wrestle with scarcity, they can't just assume away scarcity um, in doing all of this. What about China? Okay, so China, the issue with China is actually, I think, a very big one about figuring out whether or not they've actually experienced the kind of economic growth that we actually claim or they claim to have achieved. And so, you know, uh, you know, there's there's uh, the history of China is very fascinating because, you know, before, uh, you know, when Deng Xiaoping first came into power, you know, he tried one model. And then, you know, in 1985, post night, so 78 to 85 is one model operating. That doesn't work. 85 to more recently, you know, that was the more market oriented you know, globalization, these kind of things like that. Xi has kind of gone back to now wanting to, you know, sort of control the economy. They got a boost with, the, you know, the COVID shutdown because that kind of forced everyone into the same kind of model of that. And the question is, is, you know, how thriving can this Chinese economy be while being shut down and isolated and planned in the way that it is? And is it going to be an engine of creativity and growth or is it just going to be a bunch of you know white elephants with large projects, which in fact are just like the Potemkin villages of the Soviet type economy in the past? And I think that history is being written for us right now, and we have to look at that um, in terms of the market. So I don't I don't think China is some place where we point to and say, ah, look, it's all working or whatever. Um, you know, it exists. Um, he's in power. He's declared himself basically you know ruler for life. You know, let's see how that all happen. You know, shakes out in the next you know decade or whatever. You know, there's a senior fellow at AI uh, names uh, you know Jesus Fernandez uh, Valverde. He wrote a piece that um, is called "How AI Doesn't Solve the Knowledge Problem," and you know he's been working a lot on these issues or whatever. And he's a fame, you know, very very established macroeconomist, very uh, you know mainstream kind of guy, but he gets it. He recognizes and sees this aspect of things. Asimoglu, you know, has this new book out worried about technology and other things like that. But he also sort of understands this Hayekian lesson at some fundamental level about the need to have a social environment in which learning is constantly possible rather than just rote memorization. You know, and, you know, you mentioned in my paper that it, you know, it's philosophical and something like that. And, you know, at first, as an economist, I meant I that in the most that, positive way possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> it, as an economist, I first hear that I kind of bristle a little bit, but you're 100% correct, because a large part of all this stuff goes, you know, way back, much deeper in computer science literature. Um, Herbert Dreyfus wrote this book called What Computers Can't Do, you know, in 1978. And, you know, John Searle, the philosopher at Berkeley, you know, came up with this idea to try to test what the difference is between AI and human intelligence. And he called it the Chinese, you know, room test, right? And he, there's a distinction there. So, you know, the, the person in a box knows all the rules of Chinese, but never learned Chinese. 
and you put the slip of paper in an English sentence and then they spit it out the Chinese characters and you know you get it in and out but they never really learn Chinese they don't know the subtleties of the language all these things like that and I think that a large part of this is like what's going on with chat GDP, GPT. So, uh, but, you know, you, you put, you spit something in and it spits it out, you know, and it does it at amazing speed and it, and it processes it. But is the computer really learning the subtleties of the arguments that actually are being employed, you know, in those kind of ideas? Is it simulating human intelligence? It's simulating human responses because it's actually just you know, churning through a whole list of responses. So it's very much like playing chess. You know, the, 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 you know, the very pieces on chess are defined by the rules by which they can move and the spots on the board that are fixed and finite. In economy, those pieces on the board can move wherever they want. And the, and the, and the spots are infinite, not finite. And so now tell me how it is that you're going to move. Imagine if I was playing chess with you and I took my bishop and I move my bishop in a Z, you know, like just move it around like that. Well, you know what? That's what like Apple did to BlackBerry. I think the uh, the, uh, the the millennial or Gen Z socialist might listen to this whole conversation we've had. And at the end, they might think not wrong, just early. And once we get to artificial general intelligence, then the problem will be solved. So you may be right today here in August 2023, but in, in August, you know, 2033, finally, Moore's Law uh, and some very smart software will prove you wrong. So let me just give you a, a warning of that kind of thinking, which I agree with you is, is the way that everyone thinks about this. But my favorite Soviet economist um, is a man named Nikolai Bukharin. Nikolai Bukharin actually was the architect of the original plan towards communism wrote a book called The ABCs of Communism and wrote the policies that Lenin implemented between 1918 and 1921. He also then became the architect of the new economic policy where they retreated from socialism so that they could stay in power. Um, the fact that he was such a major player in this made him a target for Stalin when Stalin engaged in his purges. And so Bukharin was lost after he first sided with Stalin to get rid of Trotsky, then Trot then Stalin outflanked him and got rid of Bukharin. However, in 1925, Bukharin wrote a famous paper defending the new economic policy. And in it, he points out that Ludwig von Mises, who he had actually met and studied with in Vienna before the revolution, because he went to study and learn from the Austrian economists who were considered the uh, leading critics of Marxism, and he was tasked to go there, learn, and then criticize the Austrians. And he wrote a book all on this as well. And he says, Ludwig von Mises is the most learned critic of communism. Um, he says that Mises' analysis of why communism can't work explains why it is that we had to retreat in 1921. But then he says, we will have the last laugh because we will eventually reach a stage where we can then advance to socialism and we will defeat Mises's argument. But for right now, we have to actually live with the reality that Mises is right. And then we go on. Now, uh, you know, in the horrors of the 20th century, that speech became Stalin's justification to explain why Bukharin was a right-wing deviationist 
and then eventually he executed him. All right. Um, but uh, that speech is a famous speech given to the Politburo defending the new economic policy. And he makes this very argument that you just made. Socialism cannot work right now, but give us a generation and then we will have socialism. So do not take our power away from us because we need the power today to do this. And one of my favorite American economists, Frank Knight, used to like to say that when people tell me that they need power to do X, I stop listening after the first three words, right? They need power, right? And so, you know, we have to be very conscious of what are the political consequences of concentrating such power in the hands of such few to be able to try to pursue these dream aspirations in terms of the functioning of our democratic uh, society and free society. And, and we always have to be very vigilant about that, I would argue. Hey, Pete, thanks so much. Uh, wonderful stuff. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. And um, I hope that uh, my answers weren't too long-winded. <laughs>